my advice is the world isn't necessarily built for indigenous peoples, um, but we make it ours by our participation and our voice. everyone. Welcome to Native Minnesota, a podcast about the Native American experience in Minnesota and beyond. I'm your host, Rebecca Kirk Stratton, Secretary Treasurer of the Shakopee Midwakton Sioux Community. This podcast is a project of Understand Native Minnesota, a campaign focused on improving the narrative about Native Americans in Minnesota's public schools. Today, we have a fantastic guest, Karen Diver, Karen is the Senior Advisor to the President for Native American Affairs at the University of Minnesota. We talk about land-grant institutions, building trust with tribal nations, and her experience working for the Obama administration. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome. Uh, it's great to have you on our show. Today, I am here with Karen Diver, uh, who has a really extensive background in higher education, tribal government, federal government. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe just share a little bit about your career for our listeners uh, and talk a little bit about the leadership roles you've taken on over the years. Certainly, and thank you so much for having me. So I actually started out in the nonprofit sector. Um, I ran a YWCA in Duluth for 12 years, um, decided to invest in my education and contribute to my home community, the Fond du Lac uh, Band of Lake Superior Chippewa. So I went to the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. Um, what interested me about them in particular um, was they had the Harvard Project on American Indian Economic Development. And they were the um, earliest that really studied what worked for tribe in their own communities in terms of governance and economic development. So studied there with those folks and dove into their research. When I returned, um, I started working for the Fond du Lac Reservation first as special projects manager, doing all kinds of interesting work around um, developing programs for the reservation and strategic planning and filling in as a manager here and there. And then eventually the chairperson's office opened up and I decided to run for office and I was successful at that. So I was the first female chair of Fond du Lac. I did that for just under nine years. And of course, you know this, the breadth of tribal government is huge, right? Um, Fond du Lac is the second largest employer in all of Northern Minnesota, 2,200 employees. Um, so it's a vast enterprise and government and has a huge impact in you know, Northeastern Minnesota in terms of the economy um, and employment. But then I got a call one day and it was um, the White House under Barack Obama. And of course, as a tribal chair, interacted with all kinds of federal agencies, as well as the White House around different equities in Indian country. And they asked if I would serve in the Obama White House as his special assistant for Native American affairs during the end of his tenure. Um, so I resigned my position and worked in D.C. in the White House. Um, advising Barack Obama and various cabinet secretaries um, and trying to get some good work done for Indian country. Came home, um, was a faculty fellow at the College of St. Scholastica, 
around Native American affairs, trying to increase their academic offerings and support services for Native learners, build better ties to tribes, and then worked for the University of Arizona, the Native Nations Institute, um, working for, with tribes on everything from strategic planning to building their governance skills, training programs for people who strive to be leaders within their um, tribal communities. Then this position opened at the University of Minnesota, the chance to um, advise President Joan Gable on Native American affairs and build on the investment that the University of Minnesota had made um, with Tad Johnson and tribal liaisons. Well, tribes gave Joan Gable feedback, but now we had all this institutional work to do. Um, so she brought on a senior advisor and Tad and I worked together on hopefully making the University of Minnesota an institution that better serves tribal communities and tribal learners. That's wonderful. And I think the University of Minnesota is well on its way um, with you and Tad uh, helping advise the president. Uh, there's been a lot of really exciting things that have happened. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about this position. So it's a new role at the University of Minnesota. Um, it's never been there before. University of Minnesota has been working with tribes in a, a variety of ways, but really has never had an in-house expert. Uh, you know, why is this position important, uh, especially for tribes in Minnesota? And what do you hope to accomplish with it? You know, it's large institutions that weren't built by or for natives. You know, they're Western-focused, Western science, Western um, pedagogy, and it just doesn't work for everyone, right? Um, there's kind of baked in inequities in the University of Minnesota through its Impact 2025 um, uh, strategic plan is really looking at, you know, it's a public university. How do we serve all of the public? Um, and not only that, but undertaking that government to government relationship and talking directly to tribal leaders. So, you know, we tend to focus when we talk about tribes and indigenous peoples, we tend to focus on history. And that certainly has an impact, right? We're a land grant university. The University of Minnesota benefited from the Morrill Act, um, which was federal lands that were formerly Indian land. Um, given to them and they built wealth with it. So does that create some special equities? But then you look at contemporary Indian country. And I spoke a moment ago about the fact that we're large employers. That means we have health systems and education systems. We have hospitality industries. Um, you know, we're undertaking to, um, efforts to diversify our economies. We have modern day workforce development needs. Plus we are still striving to make life better in our home communities and for our off reservation citizens, giving them the opportunity to be personally self-sufficient. And how do we have to adapt our Western-based cultures within the university system to welcome those learners and help them be successful internally? So part of it is being kind of like an internal consultant and helping people bridge those historical inequities and, and um, you know, the, the, the impacts that have been on us as indigenous peoples, but then also helping them contemporary, in a contemporary way, really kind of um, adapt their systems to be more inclusive. 
Great. I, are you aware of positions like this in any other universities across the nation? Um, I know you've had uh, experience with like the University of Arizona and you were at uh, Harvard Kennedy School. Does this exist anywhere else? Um, University of Arizona, Arizona has a senior vice president role. Um, I know UCLA has um, an advisory role, um, but it doesn't answer directly, I don't think, to the president. So they're out there, but they're limited in number. Um, so it's been a fairly recent phenomenon within the last few years that all of them have started really looking at this. What I like about it is, is it starts to understand that um, tribes are governments and not merely just another interest group. This isn't cultural studies or anything like that. This really is about building relationships with tribal communities as they exist today. So you talked a little bit um, in our in the last question about the university being a, a land grant institution and the Morrill Act. I think a, a lot of folks across Minnesota don't really understand what that means. Could you maybe elaborate on on what is a land grant institution? What did the Morrill Act uh, do, and and how the university is benefiting? Um, so the Morrill Act was passed, I believe, in. 1862. Um, and it was focused around building up um, higher education institutions, specifically around um, agriculture and industrialization, like engineering and things like that. It authorized the federal government to grant land to um, certain universities that were authorized by states. Um, and it, it granted them lands to help. Um, fund them basically. So the universities could do lots of different things with them. They could sell them um, and build endowments with them. They could um, develop them, whether for agriculture or other means. And so there was from coast to coast, um, different universities that were granted federal lands. Now, mind you, 1862 is after treaty making in Minnesota. So what that means made um, meant for Minnesota tribes is, you know, we were coming out of conflict and we made treaties to end conflict, but the lands that were ceded through those various treaties with the federal government, our former homelands, um, were given to the University of Minnesota, um, among other institutions. And so they built their stability um, and in some ways their wealth and ability to grow um, in those states based on our in native homelands. Um, so they continue to be land-grant institutions. They're recognized as such. That gives them a special relationship um, with different federal agencies. Um, so, you know, they, they have access to ongoing resources from the former theft of our homelands. And in your experience, I, I know you haven't been there for very long, but well, it's been a year now, hasn't it? Yeah, about nine months. Okay, so we're getting up there. But I think uh, I find a lot of people within the system need a lot of educating about tribes and modern tribal governments and the fact that they're a land-grant institution. So I imagine you have to take on a role as educator in this position and do you find people are receptive across the institution of learning more and, and 
figuring out how we can partner and work together to make a better Minnesota for uh, Indian people and, and all Minnesotans? Absolutely. People are so receptive. And, you know, I tried to be a safe person for them to ask those questions to. Um, and if they don't ask them, I volunteer it anyway um, and give them kind of the background of why we do this work, what makes tribes, um, like I said earlier, a little different than other interest groups, why um, these equities are important. And I kind of bring them through you know, the timeline um, and how that impacts today, because, you know, indigenous folks are still a little overrepresented in um, a lot of key indicators of wellness, right? Um, whether that's economic, um, healthcare standards, educational standards, you know, um, the university doesn't bear the responsibility for all of it, like our K-12 graduation rate, um, which aren't great in Minnesota. I think we're the second worst in the country, right? Um, but we do have to deal with those impacts and figure out how to get them into higher ed. Um, so talking about those things help people understand within the university why we're paying special attention to it. They are receptive. They are eager to learn to the point where we're actually going to develop some training modules um, through our Office of um, Equity and Diversity um, so that I don't have to do it singularly um, over and over again. I can tell people. Here's some great background um, for you. You might want to take those classes. And when I speak to people about those being available, they're actually quite excited. That's great to hear. Um, I think, you know, the, the university uh, has partnered with tribes in, in different ways. And there's also been, you know, some tension with tribes and the university, um, especially some of the, the tribes up north around, uh, you know, genetic uh, interference with wild rice and, and some other issues. So there has been some mistrust between tribes and the university. And can you talk a little bit about some of the things the university is, is working on to rebuild that trust and to forge the partnerships going forward? Well, first of all, we need to put some of them former issues to rest, right? Um, as much as we can, or at least develop a common understanding of what occurred. Um, so with wild rice, you know, there's not unanimity amongst the um, Chippewa tribes, you know, um, for example, Red Lake um, cultivates wild rice. So they have less concern about, um, you know, science around wild rice. Um, the other Chippewa tribes have great um, concerns about it. So we're talking to the research a researcher that's undertaking um, her studies on wild rice, and we're talking about how to mitigate risk to wild stands of wild rice, you know, making sure there's no cross-pollinization, things like that. Um, we have to respect each tribe's sovereignty, right? So we need to find ways between saying no and saying yes, and something in the middle that um, relieves a little bit of the concerns on both sides. So we're figuring that out right now. We're also developing, um, I have a group across all of the campuses of researchers and um, research centers who are developing a set of protocols around tribal research. What is the best practices in um, communicating with tribes? What is informed consent? How do you deal with tribal IRBs? How do you build relationships before you want to do your research? Um, how do you use advisory boards in a way that gets you the feedback that you need so that um, ethically you're behaving in a manner 
um, that doesn't run afoul of tribal interests. So we're investing that time in process and procedures. And then, you know, with the training that we're being developed, hopefully kind of building that understanding. In addition to all of that, these are actually good problems to have that we're getting feedback about the ways that we might not have done it right. It means the tribes are trusting the University of Minnesota enough and the communication processes to say what works for them and what doesn't. Where before we just kind of gave up. I was one of those tribal leaders that kind of gave up. So the fact that we're hearing it gives us those things to work on. And then Joan Gable herself, President Gable is meeting quarterly with the tribes um, to assure that that communication continues um, and we can build that relationship and that trust back. What is it about this, this moment that all of these things are, are coming to be, the, the communication, the engagement with tribes? Um, you know, do you think there's something specific going on uh, that is kind of spurred all of this to come about? Um, I think there's a couple of things. Um, one is President Gable herself, who wants to make sure that the university is represented uh, representative and serving all of Minnesota as a public university. I think the second part of it is um, kind of renewed focus across the country on social justice issues, um, and in particular, racial justice issues. Um, too often for Indigenous peoples, you know, we're kind of, people call it being othered, you know, that, um, you know, we're just not in a critical mass enough on a per capita basis. You get, you know, Black, Hispanic, Asian, and then other, and we're the other, right? And so um, with there being 11 tribes in Minnesota, it's harder to other us here. Um, that attention needs to be given. And then increasing understanding about tribes as gov governments. I think so. All of those things together make this time right um, to have those conversations and really look internal to the university and see how we're doing well and how we could improve. Um, yeah, there is a lot going on across Indian country and around narrative change and, um, you know, making sure people understand we still exist, right? Not just in the past, but as, as modern tribal governments. I know when President Gable um, first came to the university, she did make it a point to reach out to tribes. And I know she came out here to Shakopee and we were really appreciative of, of her stopping by and, you know, just wanting to, to learn and engage. And I think it, it's been a wonderful relationship. Um, so here at Shakopee, we actually have a, a fantastic relationship with the University of Minnesota. We've partnered on things um, like Seeds of Native Health, you know, hosting an annual conference. We have um, a scholarship for, for Native students there, um, which was actually enhanced and, and made better this past year by a system-wide tuition waiver uh, for Indigenous students here in Minnesota. Um, can you talk a little bit about the tuition waiver and, and what that means for Indian country and the op opportunity and access it provides to our people here in Minnesota? It was really an exciting thing um, to be able to be a part of um, the Native American um, Promise Program. So um, it will cover for the 11 tribes of Minnesota enrolled citizens, regardless of their residency in Minnesota. If your family income, um, according to FAVSA, um, is less than 75,000, um, you will pay no tuition. 
Um, that does not include the fees, however, um, but tuition only. Um, and then it, it kind of phases out after um, 125,000 of family income. So, you know, we've gotten some feedback um, on the tuition program. You know, will it someday include fees? Will it include other native tribes? Right now, it, it was it's for freshmen enrolling next fall, um, as well as any tribal college um, transfer students. For us within the University of Minnesota, we consider this a first good step. Um, will it be the last step we take? Hopefully not. Um, so we still are accountable to um, folks for a budget, you know, the Board of Regents and the legislature and things like that. Um, we have really no good way to calculate um, what this will do in terms of enrollment. So by kind of starting with the freshmen and the tribal college transfer students, we already know our obligation will be more next year um, because we'll have freshmen and sophomores and so on. And this will give us a good way to kind of do future budgeting and see what additional steps we can take to increase college affordability. It also means though that for tribes who have scholarship programs, their dollars will reach a little further um, because the university um, will be taking that first big bite. Um, and so tribes who have been spending quite a bit of their resources um, to enable their citizens or others, like in the case of Shakopee, um, to attend higher ed, um, they can either serve more learners or take on more of the costs and spread that money and help those learners a little bit more. Do you think that program will expand, um, you know, as uh, the University of Minnesota Twin Cities campus uh, is definitely sitting on the ancestral lands of the, the Dakota people, um, and a lot of our people were exiled as a result of the Minnesota-Dakota War, and um, so, you know, we've got people in North Dakota and South Dakota and Canada and um, if, if there is an expansion, do we talk about expanding to, you know, tribes who call this home or even tribal citizens nationwide? You know, um, we've had quite a bit of feedback and, and give it, been given many options to look at expansion. Um, another area that folks were wondering um, if we could keep on the table is descendants, um, those who are not eligible for tribal enrollment. Um, that one's a little tough because there's no good demographic data um, to budget because, you know, most tribes don't really keep track of descendants in the same way that they do citizens. So how do you quantify that? There's been some definite feedback around um, expanding it to other tribes as well as nationally. And I think, you know, once we see kind of participation rates, so to speak, from the existing program, that'll give us a way to do some kind of forecasting to see what's affordable for the system um, and how we may implement it. Complicating all of this at this point, and this is particularly, you know, a, a University of Minnesota um, investment. Right now, um, the university figured out how to do this out of existing resources. Um, so there was no extra legislative appropriation or anything like that. So. Um, once you need to do that to accommodate more, then you need to have, you know, a kind of a, a different set of plans on, on implementation and engagement. During today's episode, we talked a bit about native land. 
If you'd like to learn more about the original inhabitants of the land you're on now, I encourage you to check out the artist, Marlena Miles. She created beautiful Dakota land maps that showed Dakota names and landmarks in the Twin Cities, Prairie Island, Red Wing, and Winona. Visit the link in our description. Now, back to our episode. Oh, that all makes sense. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about some of the uh, educational opportunities the university has to specifically support um, tribal nations and citizens. Um, I believe the MTAG program, the Masters of Tribal Administration and Governance, there's also a, a tribal resource management program um, out of the University of Minnesota Duluth, uh, but are also online. Um, can you talk a little bit about the partnerships and how those courses came about and maybe the impact they're having on tribal nations? I know um, I, I'm a graduate of the MTAG program and really appreciated uh, the time and effort that went into that. Curiously enough, um, prior to the start of the MTAG program, I was still tribal chair at Fond du Lac. And I remember talking to Tad Johnson at the time, and he's like, we're thinking of starting this program. And I said, well, make sure it's a good mix of theory and application. Um, because when you talk tribal governance, it's really about people being able to do stuff um, as much as it is understanding why you need to do it, right? Um, and, the, and the basis for tribal governments and their sovereignty, um, you know, the, the ability to be self-governed, right? Um, which is what we always had and which has been held through through court cases, but other jurisdictions don't understand it. And what is the extent of that, that sovereignty, right? So um, the master's in um, tribal administration and governance is, um, and now there's a bachelor's as well, is really about training people for increased leadership within their tribes. Um, and leadership is um, a very holistic term. Um, maybe you want to run a division or a department, or you have a degree already, an undergraduate degree in a particular discipline like education, but you want to be able to put your role in your tribe or another tribe into some context of um, the scope of tribal government and your authority. Um, so it gives you that practical knowledge of kind of that balcony level, but with really hands-on skills, like what is an indirect cost rate? Uh, how do you nego negotiate self-governance compacts um, with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is our main tool for funding um, tribal government? Um, so it's a mix of practical um, and kind of not, not theory, but um, background, so to speak, um, of how tribal governments have evolved over time. That grew into the natural resources degree. Every tribe I know um, is, takes care of its relatives um, in the natural world, right? Um, they wanna take care of their homeland. So, you know, whether they're running water quality programs or wildlife programs or forestry services, um, this takes those same kind of balcony level themes around um, tribal land management um, and everything that entails and environmental issues um, and talks about how to run those programs and what is the basis of the tribe's authority, um, whether it's on reservation or the broader lands that tribes have equities in, what we call ceded territories. There are larger areas outside of reservations where tribes have retained rights to hunt, fish, and gather. 
Um, so kind of talking about those interjurisdictional roles and things like that. So um, we've had a lot of leaders from coast to coast um, go through MTAG, build their skills, build their understanding. What I like about it as someone who is a former tribal leader is you have this critical mass developing of folks within tribal communities who are all speaking the same language and have the same base of knowledge. And I think that makes us stronger together. What other kind of opportunities do tribes across Minnesota have to engage with the university? So now, um, so every campus um, has a Native American advisory board. Um, it has tribal leaders um, and other indigenous leaders that each campus can engage with. Um, the only one that's kind of small and a little more informal right now is Rochester. Um, there's one tribe nearby, so they're just talking directly to them, um, which makes sense. Um, but all of the other five campuses um, have either revived or are continuing with their American Indian Advisory Board. Um, a lot of it is um, talking about what is happening on each campus around student supports. We can talk to tribes about what their workforce development needs are. We can offer scholarships um, to their citizens. But once they come to the University of Minnesota, our job is to make a community for them and to have our pedagogy re kind of reflective of their interests. So it might not be entire degree programs. It might be something that looks more like um, a minor in American Indian health or a certificate so that you can go get that nursing degree um, or public health degree, but you have this option to have a part of your studies really focusing on the needs of your community that end up being different and where you're not othered and the data is reflective of um, developing the solutions that go to some of those in inequities we talked about earlier. So, um, you know, just kind of really exploring that world of options of how do we engage our native learners and native communities so that they see themselves as an integral part of what we do and not a special initiative, not a program. It's just a part of what we do. Yeah, supporting community. I think that's great. Um, I, I, this has been in the back of my mind uh, since we started this conversation, but there is one campus, the, the Morris campus at the university that does have some um, pretty deep history with tribal communities in that there was a boarding school there. And I think with, um, you know, all the, the information that's come out of Canada with the, the mass graves and some of the, the things that have gone on with boarding schools, how is the university, um, you know, talking about and addressing maybe some of the, the hard feelings and hard conversations that are, are coming out of this information and kind of um, dealing with this past? So you brought it up earlier that, um, you know, Morris has the tuition waiver for any Native American student because serving Native learners and they have their, they have enough Native learners to um, be designated as a Native American serving institution. Um, so they have a critical mass of Native learners there. And because of that, they have engaged highly 
with the Native American community and tribes and always have. So this isn't something new to them. It's just a part of what they do. They actually had the conversation around its boarding school past. Um, they have those regularly, but they were engaging um, uh, several years ago with their advisory board. And at that time, the advisory board really didn't want to do any kind of um, study of the grounds. And there's fairly decent historical records there where in many locations there are not. Um, so they really did kind of like a literature review, so to speak. Um, with everything that came out of Canada, though, there's been some renewed conversation and um, wondering whether or not they should revisit that decision from back then. And, and they've had healing ceremonies. They've had elders in residence, you know, to help the learners kind of process some of the things coming out of Canada in the context of that place. Right. Um, they've shown a lot of care and a, um, a lot of empathy. Um, so they are in conversations with some of the tribal historic preservation officers now um, and the advisory board to see if they want to revisit that issue and how to go about it, um, the processes that would have to kind of occur. Um, ground penetrating radar is an imprecise science. It just shows you if there was ever a disturbance in the ground, but it can't tell you what. It could have been a farmer 50 years ago that pulled up a stump. Um, so then there's also the school of thought among indigenous people that um, you don't disturb your loved ones once they're, they're laid to rest. And is there another way to go about healing? So um, they need to have those conversations. They need to have a consensus so that everybody can um, feel that they're being heard and that the solution feels equitable and is a part of healing and doesn't cause more trauma. And I must say, I'm really proud of Morris that they've been very adept at making sure that those conversations are deep and meaningful and not performative. You know, the, the fact that the boarding school era isn't that, that far removed from us at this generation. Um, both my grandparents attended boarding schools. And so I think, you know, that that experience is still kind of trickling down to lack of trust in public education and, um, you know, large institutions like the University of Minnesota. Um, but I think some of these initiatives are going a long way to um, kind of build that trust back and, and show people that uh, we do as Native people um, have a place in, in higher education and um, we can fit in there. And I think you're a, a prime example of that with um, all your education experience. And I think maybe I'd, I'd like to just ask you, can you share a little bit with, you know, we're, are you a first generation college student? Um, what was your experience when you were getting into higher education? And do you have any advice for um, our young Native students who are looking to post-secondary uh, education? You know, it's interesting that you bring up kind of the boarding school past and, and that feeding into distrust. My dad was a boarding school kid. Um, he got taken away with his brother to Wapaton, North Dakota when he was six and his brother was five and then graduated from Flandreau Indian School. So his entire, you know, academic life was spent in boarding schools. 
interestingly enough, when he returned home after graduating, you know, it was a border town situation. He couldn't get work, even though he had a high school education. Um, so I grew up on relocation um, off reservation. It was a federal Indian program that said, if you go to these big cities, we'll help you find a job and you can be economically self-sufficient. So we became disenfranchised from our, our home community. And that was the price my parents had to pay in order to be self-sufficient and, and kind of escape racism. But my parents invested heavily in our K-12 education. Um, you know, I, I always tell people my parents never had a home or a new car, but they put all four of their children through 12 years of private school. My parents said to us that education is something nobody can ever take from you and that it's your ability to make decisions for yourself and, and be economically self-sufficient. But I was still was the first one to go to college in my family. Um, I was a young mother, um, a teen mom. I needed to go to college. I, in order to go, I came to Minnesota because I could access tribal scholarship funds here. So teen mom, I had to then leave my support system in order to access education. But I did it. I did it at University of Minnesota Duluth. Um, you know, that, that first graduate in the family, my undergraduate degrees in economics. And I can tell you that I was a terrible student. Um, my grades were terrible, um, but I was also surviving. I was poor um, on welfare. I took a lot of credits because it was more important for me to be done um, than it was for me to do great. I needed the paper because that's what society says you needed. Um, so I did not thrive and I had a lot of barriers, um, you know, transportation, financial, certainly, you know, find, keeping housing that I could afford, taking care of my daughter all by myself without anybody around to help. Um, but a lot of our Native families are like that, right? Um, they're they're non-traditional learners, um, you know, just trying to find their way. Um, and so, you know, interestingly for me enough, I get to retroactively improve my life, right? Um, I get to kind of take care of some of those things that I knew were barriers for me, like navigating the system. You know, how do you problem solve within the University of Minnesota? What things are negotiable, what things are not? I didn't know that, you know, if you transfer in between campuses and some of your credits don't transfer, that you can appeal it. Well, building support systems for students means that there's somebody there that can help them with those things. So my advice is the world isn't necessarily built for indigenous peoples, um, but we make it ours by our participation and our voice. Who would have thought, you know, a young Indian girl would have a degree in economics, um, but the world makes a little more sense to me for understanding it. Um, so we need to learn about these institutions to figure out how we can participate better, um, how we can make a difference, how our voices can be heard, where we need to be advocates. So if you want safe and you want everything familiar, then unfortunately the sacrifices of our ancestors will be for naught because they wanted us to have a place in the world and they wanted us to have whatever place we wanted. And higher ed is one of the ways that you get there. 
Absolutely. I think being an advocate for yourself, that's so important. I know um, I went to the University of Arizona and I was a political science, American Indian studies um, major. And for political science, I had to take uh, international relations courses and I just did not like them. I didn't, uh, it, it wasn't my thing when you were talking world stage. Uh, so I uh, went to the, the counselor and asked if I could take tribal government and Indian law courses and fulfill the requirement for um, my international studies. And, you know, I argued that these are sovereign nations, sovereignty, you know, whether it's international or here within the United States um, is, is one of the reasons you have to take these courses. So um, yeah, as an advocate for myself, I was able to, you know, take some more courses that I actually enjoyed. So um, I agree that that is very important. Um, so we've talked a lot about the University of Minnesota, but I we can't uh, end this podcast without talking a little bit about your previous roles in your career, serving as President Obama's special assistant uh, for Native American Affairs is a, a pretty amazing experience, I would guess. Um, can you tell us a, a little bit about what that was like? Well, you know, in hindsight, it seems a little surreal, right? Um, it's just something you see on TV all the time, right? And then all of a sudden you're walking around and um, spent about the first three days walking around with my mouth hanging open. Um, and then just quickly realized there's just so much work to do, right? Um, so tribes interact most um, with the federal government. And there's 27 different agencies that um, have some portfolio of um, dealing with tribes. Um, the biggest, of course, is Department of Interior. They also have the most capacity, but it's, you know, it's EPA, it's transportation, it's health and human services. Um, it's so many of them. So, you know, quickly I realized that the volume of the office was huge because any regulatory changes, any policy changes, it funneled through my office. Um, so on day one, I get this email saying, you know, this is this proposed policy change. What do you think of it? And, or, you know, do you approve? And I'm like, does it require my approval? Or what if I don't approve? Then what? What do I do then? You know, and so just kind of figuring out the systems, right? But it was also kind of building those cross-agency teams. It's like, all right, we're all working on the same thing. How do we talk a little better? Um, you know, and one thing that I think I brought value to in the role was I was on the other side as a tribal leader. So I could have that hat on and say, all right, you're overreaching a little bit, federal government. This might require some consultation. Put the brakes on it, you know, and, and get to the table and have those conversations. So. I tell people in hindsight, I didn't think I would have to be that internal advocate like we talked about within the University of Minnesota. I had to do that at the White House, too. Um, I thought, you know, after Barack Obama having a Native American affairs advisor during his entire presidency, that those conversations were done already. But what I didn't understand was that the White House actually borrows staff from the agencies and they're only allowed to keep them for a year. Um, and there's very few core staff that stay um, through the entire um, presidency. They build capacity by borrowing them. They're called detailees. So even though 
you know, my predecessors, Kim Teehee and Jody Gillette might've had those conversations. Those folks were gone and there was a new one there. So I had to start at the beginning again. Um, what I had going for me was that tribal chairwoman background. Once again, you know, you get the tone. I'm the expert on this one. Um, and that really helped um, because I knew tribal government and I, and I could talk about what they were doing and how it would impact tribes and that we were to do no harm. Um, Barack Obama himself elevated indigenous peoples. Um, you see Joe Biden continuing with that, even doing a little better in terms of the number of native appointees. That voice just matters um, so much. But it was exhausting, frustrating, exhilarating. Um, you know, you got to see and do things that were a part of history. And um, I'll forever be grateful for that opportunity. Yeah, I, I think it is so important to have uh, our voice at the table. And it's so inspiring to see uh, Secretary Holland in, in her position. And, um, you know, what what did that mean for, for you? Uh, I know all of Indian country was so excited and cheering and I definitely shed some tears when she was sworn in. Um, you know, what were your thoughts as somebody who'd been on the inside? You know, talk about, um, you know, not having to convince your chain of command about um, the issues that are important to your people. Um, Department of Interior, you know, obviously the prime agency dealing with um, Indian country around their governance issues but also just public lands. I mean, these are our homelands. We will always think of this country as our homelands and with the broad swath of public lands that are under control of Department of Interior and the fact that she understands that tribes have equities in those. Um, those are sacred places. Those are places used for hunting, fishing, gathering. You don't even have to be that advocate. You can let that part go. She's got that. You know, you can watch her and find out that, you know, if at some point she needs Indian country to rally around her, she knows she's got us. Um, it just felt like half the battle was already fought with her appointment and confirmation. Then when you take it a step further and you see um, just the wonderful Indian Native leaders that she's brought in. Um, within the Department of Interior, people with federal government experience, tribal leader experience, and how much more robust and deep the conversations that Indian country can have with that agency because they've got just experienced people there. And then you see that across all of the agencies, really. They are appointing maybe people to high positions and, and ones that are in authority. And it just feels like about time. Absolutely. Um, you know, when you, you see our Native women, our tribal leaders filling these um, prominent positions, you know, not only at the federal level, but here in Minnesota with our lieutenant governor um, being a, a white earth citizen. And, um, you know, I, I think it's important for our people to see themselves, you know, reflected in these uh important positions. And, you know, you yourself have mentored many people uh, as a tribal leader and in all your different positions. And, you know, I've definitely appreciated your guidance over the years. Um, you know, what does that mean for for you and, and how you inspire and, um, you know, talk to talk to people that 
uh, are up and coming and that are looking to you for guidance? Well, first of all, thank you. That's very kind of you. Um, I'm inspired by all of these women who, so in some ways, I feel like back in the day, you know, being the first tribal leader, you know, it was a new thought, right? Um, for my reservation to have, it was all men all the time, except for two women. And the, the second woman was elected like six months prior to me. So just having women in leadership locally was um, a novelty and it shouldn't be, but it, it was, you know, and what I like about the younger generation where I feel like I was a little bit of an outlier and maybe having to throw some elbows along the way um, to make sure that people knew that we were confident in our place. Um, I like the newer generations coming up um, expecting that it is their place, not saying, you know, can I be there, but saying when, when will I be there and what can I do to get there? And um, once again, much like we said, I said with the federal government, the critical mass of Native women leaders, you know, I'm looking at, you know, Minnesota's legislature, you know, Heather Keeler and, you know, Mary Kunish, you know, and others before her, um, before them. And of course, um, you know, Lieutenant Governor Penny, Peggy Flanagan, but you see it all over the country at all levels. And in many ways, we've looked to influence our tribal governments. Tribal governments aren't necessarily the place that's holding back Native women's participation anymore. It's those other units of government and having that voice there, um, that ability to have broader policymaking. I mean, one of the things I got tired of saying over and over as a tribal chair was to other jurisdiction of saying, we're your citizens too. You don't get to say that's tribal government's problem. I'm your citizen too. You need to represent indigenous peoples of your state as much as tribal government does. And now we see indigenous women in those roles as well. So to me, it just seems like we're turning a corner in terms of representation where hopefully we just won't have to fight quite as hard and we won't have to fight from the outside. Yeah, I'm fighting it from the inside now. Uh, I know we we have to wrap up here, but um, just a couple more wrap up questions. Um, you obviously have got to got some really wonderful opportunities in your career, and just you know, reflecting on on some of the things you've learned. What are some of the most val or maybe one of the most valuable lessons? Um, and then on the flip side, maybe one of the most difficult things you've encountered in your career. One of the things that I think has helped me be a better advocate from within these systems is understanding that you need to understand as an advocate what is motivating the people who you're trying to influence. Um, you know, by some folks, it's the social justice aspects, right? Um, other people, it is, um, you know, about building, um, you know, tribal access to self-sufficiency. I'm thinking of kind of right-left politics, right? Um, governance closer to home is a, 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 a right-leaning philosophy, right? Um, and self-rule and personal self-determination. Um, but yet on the left, it's much more of that justice. Um, perspective and um, taking care of one another. 
you might take the same issue, but you need to have two versions of it because you need to understand what motivates the people you're trying to move. They aren't necessarily helping you because you're making a good case. They are motivated based on what their interest is in your issue. So you need to understand that and communicate to that. What will get people motivated to support your issue based on what their equities are in it, not just tribal equities. So you need to be nimble in your messaging. Um, and I think that's one big thing I'd like to give out um, to younger folks who are, are trying to be advocates in, in whatever field they've chosen. One of the probably more difficult things that um, I've learned is there's some people you can't convince. You know, some people aren't necessarily motivated by helping other people um, or caring about their interests or, you know, they, they lack the ability to have empathy and want just as well for um, the people around them. And, you know, that's a hard lesson to learn. We always think, you know, well, only if I can make them understand. Well, maybe they do understand and they don't care. Um, and, and that's just kind of showing the divide of kind of what we've experienced in our country in the last couple of years, I think, in that people are socialized different, their um, moral compasses are different, their ability to process information, um, you know, is different. Um, you know, their, their self-awareness um, and, you know, ability to kind of care about one another isn't the same. And, and that's different for Indigenous people because we're raised to care about one another. It's really fundamental to our Indigenous values. It's a part of who we are. Um, and not everybody's like that. Um, and I'm not making a judgment about it. I'm just saying it makes the work of inclusivity and justice very difficult because those aren't necessarily things that everybody values. And I guess just one final question before we wrap up. Um, what's one of your greatest wishes for kind of the work you're doing now for Indian country and, and the university and higher education? Um, what do you, you know, what do you hope to kind of be a, a legacy of this effort? You know, it, it's the same legacy that I had as a tribal chairperson too, is that every single one of our citizens has within their power and control the opportunity for their own personal self-determination. Um, think of how much easier it would be to govern our communities when they felt like they had agency in their own life um, because they were economically self-sufficient, they felt fulfilled, they could um, provide better options for their families, they had good health. Um, you know, um, mobility, um, whatever it is that makes people have the, the ability to practice traditional lifestyles and not choose to be poor because of it. Um, you know, that they had that ability to be just as successful, however they define it, as every other person. And because of that, our families are healthier and our, our children are healthier. So I just want wellness for our, our people individually and collectively. And, you know, working in these institutions is one of the means to having that happen. Empowering tribal government is, and building tribal governments capacity is another way. So I'm a part of everyone, including yourself, working to make a better place for our, our citizens. 
Thank you so much for being with us today. That was a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I'm sure all of our listeners will too. So thanks, Karen. Thank you for joining me for the Native Minnesota podcast. For more episodes, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also visit our website, understandnativemn.org, to learn more about our campaign's work to improve the Native narrative in Minnesota's public schools.